welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Justin Quirk. We often think of Germany as an oasis of calm and efficient government, especially compared to ours. The Merkel government's initial response to the coronavirus pandemic was so successful that Germany was lauded as a prime example of how to do COVID right. But the second wave of the virus has been much worse, with over 65,000 deaths, a new hard lockdown, and this week, the surprise closure of borders with both Austria and the Czech Republic. The vaccine rollout is going so badly, with just 4% of residents getting the jab, that it's imperiling Angela Merkel's legacy. After 15 years in power, Merkel will leave the stage in September's general election, and she might live under a cloud as a result. So what does the future have in store for Germany after Muti? And how did its COVID success story go wrong? To explain all this, we've got a special guest who loves Germany so much, he's got a picture of Kraftwerk as his Twitter profile pic. Tom Nuttall, Berlin Bureau Chief of The Economist. Hello, Tom. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. So going back to the COVID response there, Germany had a what appears to be a reasonable pandemic at first, with much lower death rates in the UK, but the second wave has been much harsher. How are the German people feeling about how well the country has handled this past 12 months, do you think? I say two things. I wouldn't overstate the success of the first wave, and I wouldn't overstate the failure of the second wave. Um, I mean, clearly the last few months have been tougher than the spring was, and you you outlined um, some of the numbers in your introduction. Um, I think when this thing is all finally behind us, if we're sort of tossing up the numbers, and, um, you know, I think Germany will still turn out to have been one of the places where, if you're in Europe, where you would have wanted to live through this pandemic. Um, And that's partly because of a sort of uh, kind of pre-existing features of the healthcare system, which made it easier to to do contact tracing, a sort of decentralized system of government that meant decisions were taken closer to people and so on. But as to how people feel about it, well, I mean, they feel pretty rotten, like they feel everywhere. Um, We're in a relatively hard lockdown here, not quite as hard as some other European countries have experienced, but um, more or less everything is shut, including schools. And yes, there is a feeling that having handled things relatively well last spring, it went a little bit wrong this winter. Partly, it's clear that that is the result of the so-called, what is called here, the, the British variant, which now accounts for around one-fifth of infections in the country. But the numbers started to go up quickly back in sort of November, December, well before the, the, the British strain of the virus had really entered Germany. So, you know, I think there's a general sense that things were relaxed too quickly. There was a big spat, in fact, several big spats between Merkel herself and the leaders of Germany's 16 states who actually have the competence to impose measures in their states. Um, In general, you had lots of those pushing to open up more quickly, Merkel wanting to press down on the brakes, but she was often unable to impose her will on those leaders. So you have this sort of internal battle here. And I think Merkel has largely been vindicated in that. So um, yes, there's a sense of frustration. There's also now, numbers have been falling quite quickly, but they haven't got down to the level that Merkel says that they should be at to start reopening, you're starting to see a small but growing sense of frustration that things aren't reopening more quickly amongst business, amongst parents whose kids can't go back to school, amongst tourists who want to go on holiday. So that's going to be one to watch for the weeks ahead, I think. You mentioned there that pushback that Merkel was receiving from the the locals and the heads of state around Germany. In this country, that debate around opening versus closing is very much broken down along political lines. You know, it's become sort of quite a hard right position to sort of push for 
reopening, um, you know, overriding any sort of lockdown. Has that been the case in Germany as well? Um, is it breaking down on those sort of political lines? So we did have last year in the spring and the summer, we did have a sort of peculiar movement that went under the name of Querdenken, um, sort of roughly translates as lateral thinkers, um, who staged some protests in Stuttgart and Berlin and some, some other places. And this is a very sort of peculiar alliance of kind of hard right conspiracy theorists with sort of vegan radicals, anti-vaxxers, people who thought that Bill Gates wanted to plant microchips inside their brain, all this sort of stuff, pushing for a, um, an, a much quicker end to restrictions. Um, but that was very obviously fringe. They made a lot of noise and they actually caused a bit of trouble, but it was very obviously um, part of the political fringes. The mainstream parties, by and large, supported um, the government's measures, with some exceptions here and there. I'd say you're starting to see now there's a little bit more political friction now. There's a small Liberal Party, the Free Democrats, who are angry that Parliament doesn't have more of a say in easing restrictions. Um, the Social Democrats, who actually are the junior coalition partners, so they're in government, junior to Angela Merkel's Christian Democrats, they've also been kicking up a bit of a stink about the vaccination strategy. But I think I would frame all of this in the context of an election year. You know, we're going to have an election at the end of September, just over six months from now. Parties are jostling for position. The pandemic is going to be very fresh in the memory then. So I think you need to understand what political friction there is now. And I wouldn't overstate it um, in that context that people are looking ahead now to uh, to a very important election that's going to be taking place in the autumn. You, you mentioned there the eight incoming elections. I and mean, obviously Merkel you know, has been a public figure for this lengthy period. And for someone who's been around that long, her personal approval ratings seem to have held up remarkably well throughout the last year. Is this because she's actually performed particularly well, or is it more of a reflection of a kind of rallying behind the flag that we're seeing? As an outsider, how would you rate her performance? That's a good question. I mean, I think the the first thing to say is that if it is a rallying around the flag effect, which is possible, you don't see that everywhere else in places that you might expect it. So that leads me to think that there's sort of something else going on here. Um, certainly the, the pandemic has played to some of Merkel's skills as a politician. You know, she's very calm. She's very collected. She doesn't sort of fall prey to fads or get caught up in controversies. And she also has a scientific background, which has meant that um, she's been able to explain what the development of the pandemic directly to citizens in a way that sort of conveys authority that I think has helped um, the country avoid some of the more hysterical debates that you've seen in other European countries. That said, some of the successes that Germany has enjoyed in managing this pandemic, as I said before, I think are largely down to pre-existing sort of structural features of the way that the country works, the way that the health system works, the way that powers are devolved to states and to health authorities around the country. That's what Merkel's doing, and that was there, and that's been in place ever since the Federal Republic was set up after the Second World War. So she can't particularly take any credit for that. But I think that what that there is one way of kind of definitively answering the question, really, which is that if you look at opinion polls, not for individuals, but for parties, then you see that more or less at the moment that the pandemic really struck last March, support for Merkel's Christian Democrats shot up 
It's now at around sort of 37, 38%. It stayed there throughout the course of this pandemic. That seems to have a hell of a lot to do with support for the particular positions that she and the party have taken during the pandemic. And one big question, probably the biggest political question in the weeks and months ahead, is once Germans really kind of clock that Merkel is on the way out, that she's not standing for re-election, that there's going to be another chancellor at the end of the year, how much will that support fall? In other words, how big is the Merkel bonus that the CDU is currently enjoying? Can you give us a sense of how significant you think Merkel's departure will be? So not just politically, but almost emotionally for the country. Will we be looking at a sort of standard handover of power? Or will it be something more akin to, say, when Thatcher stepped down in the UK and it felt like a very particular era drawing to a close? Yeah, it's a complicated question. I mean, it clearly is going to be the end of a very, very significant era um, for Germans, but but you know, as much for Europeans as well. You know, Angela Merkel has been at the heart of the endless European crises that we've seen over the last decade, from the Eurozone to refugees to Russia and Ukraine, you name it. Yeah, I think even the prospect of her leaving leaves some Europeans, you know, quite nervous about what's going to come next, you know, who's going to hold it together once she's gone. And certainly in Germany, I think you you have some similar feelings. I mean, there's a whole generation of young people who have grown up never knowing a German chancellor other than Angela Merkel. So the prospect of her leaving is certainly going to leave some of them feeling a little bit nervous. All that said, you know, one of the features of of German politics and one of the things that actually sometimes makes it a a bit hard to be a journalist here is that you have this very sort of strong push for consensus. I mean, it it, it seemed most obviously in the fact that Germany is always run by a coalition, you know, unlike a country like France or most of the time Britain or other European countries. So uh, there are these sort of strong structural forces that force leaders to find compromises with each other. And I think the chances are almost certain that whoever it is that takes over from Angela Merkel, you know, they are not going to represent a fundamental departure from the approach that she has taken either domestically or at European level or even beyond Europe um, for the last 15 years. Continuity is really highly valued in Germany. There are very few votes in promising rupture, radical change. And so I think for the people who are worrying about what Merkel's departure might mean for Germany or, or for Europe. Yes, you know, we're going to lose someone with extraordinary experience, great staying power, incredible network, knows leaders all over the world, and you're not going to be able to, you know, remake that immediately. But at the same time, we're not going to see any sort of radical departure from, uh, from the Germany that we've come to know under Angle. The growth of the Green Movement and the Green Party in Germany is something that's been slightly unnoticed outside of the country. You know, we've often focused very heavily on groups like the AFD getting sort of results and going up in the polls, whereas the Greens seem to have really grown in both power and sophistication over the last 10 years in Germany. Is that a fair assessment, do you think? And could we see something similar to what you've got in Austria, where, you know, they're the main coalition partner with the right-wing OVP and that sort of green right alliance that we're not really familiar with in this country? 
I think this is, um, by some distance, the likeliest outcome of the election, that you have a, a CDU-CSU-led coalition with the Green Party and what they call a black-green coalition here, which, as you say, is, is similar to what we've had um, in Austria for a while. Um, and obviously, this is a sort of a fascinating thing to watch. It won't be an easy coalition to assemble. They have all sorts of disagreements on everything from uh, national security and defence to migration to uh, fiscal and investment policy. But this is how Germany works. You know, uh, parties thrash out differences in coalition negotiations and they strike compromises. And I think the, the important thing here is that the Green Party in Germany is ready for power. It wants it. It's, you know, it's almost sort of craving it, really. And it is very much positioned itself as a party of the centre. Um, they don't want to scare the horses, which is interesting for a party that started 40 years ago um, as a group of sort of rabble rousers, outsiders focused on sort of fringe issues like nuclear power. The Austria comparison is interesting, but I think it can only take you so far for several reasons. Green Party, if you look at Germany's federal system, you've got 16 states here. The Green Party are in government in, I think, nine of them, certainly in a majority of them, and they lead one of them, Baden-Württemberg, we discussed before. This means that they have extensive governing experience at state level. It also means that there is a very large pool of experienced politicians that um, a Green Party in the federal government could call on for, you know, ministerial posts, junior ministerial posts, state secretaries, and so on. They also are much more experienced at the kind of rough and tumble of politics and their counterparts in Austria, um, who, you know, as, as far as I can see, have, have really been, ever since they joined government, they've been outplayed at every turn by Sebastian Kurz, who's the Conservative Chancellor there. I think that's much less likely to happen in a Conservative Green Party coalition in Germany. Plus, of course, you won't have Angela Merkel there. You will have a new conservative chancellor. So the Greens will have a very strong opportunity to place their mark on a number of key areas. So I think um, a black-green experiment in, in Germany will be fascinating. I think it's likely. I think it could lead the country in some unexpected new directions. Um, and I think it's absolutely something that the rest of Europe should be watching very closely. And of course, at the other end of the political spectrum, you've got the AFD on the far right. And there was great consternation in 2017 when they took around 13% of the vote. Are they still a cause for concern or have they sort of topped out at that rating, do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, they've actually fallen back considerably from um, from that election result, um, and that made them the largest opposition in, in opposition party in the Bundestag. Because, I mean, yes, it's always cause for concern when you have a, a hard right party represented in um, in the federal and also in state legislatures, particularly, of course, in a country like Germany. And there are particular problems in the East German states, um, because the AFD tends to do very well there, so well, in fact, that it can cause huge problems to the other parties when they're trying to assemble coalitions uh, simply um, because of the parliamentary arithmetic. That actually caused huge problems for the CDU's previous uh, leader a year ago in, in, in the state of Thuringia. But at national level, they're riven by infighting. They have no clear political message. Their attempts to try and sort of capitalize on a sort of anti-lockdown message in the, during the COVID crisis hasn't really managed to gain any traction, I'd say. The only real effect, I'd say, is that maybe they might hope to get sort of 10% in September, something like that. Um, it's not really enough to scare the horses. It certainly doesn't put Germany outside of the European mainstream. 
What it does potentially do is make coalition forming a little bit more complicated. That just depends on the precise um, election result. But for example, you can imagine a scenario where the Conservatives and the Greens together don't have enough seats to command a majority in Parliament, partly because the AFD has eaten into it, and they need to go to a third party to form what would then be, um, become a much clunkier, uh, difficult coalition. But this is a, quite a common story across Europe, particularly in countries where you have a tradition of coalition forming. So I think really what you've got here is simply an example of Germany square in the European mainstream with a fairly nasty hard right party winning a share of votes that is larger than we would like to see, but not so large that we really need to start you know, freaking out about it. That's reassuring. And there's various stories breaking this week as well. I think they're under surveillance to some degree from the security services, aren't they? Yeah, there was, um, they had a, the, the AFD, which is an extremist party, had an extremist wing uh, called the Flugel, which, uh, which is sort of a, a, a colloquial term for wing, um, which was put under surveillance by German intelligence services. There have long been rumours that the entire party itself might be subject to, to scrutiny. As far as I'm aware, that hasn't actually happened yet, but it's something we keep being told maybe about to happen. So yeah, it's, it's one to watch. And they certainly do harbour all sorts of you know, nasty individuals, very unpleasant ideas, sometimes flirting with sort of anti-democratic forces, violent forces. So, you know, it wouldn't be surprising if the intelligence services did want to keep a, a close eye on them. And looking outwards from the country, can you tell us what the significance is of the Nord Stream 2 energy pipeline? Now, this is scheduled to double Russian gas exports to Germany. It's nearing completion at the moment. Why does it matter? And more importantly, do you think the project will be completed? Yeah, I mean, Nord Stream 2 is basically Germany's biggest foreign policy headache and has been for some time, ever since it was um, conceived back in 2015. The problem, as many see it, is that it increases European dependence on Russian gas um, and in particular, that it throws the Ukrainians under the bus, because if um, Nord Stream 2 comes on stream, then an existing land-based pipeline running from Russia through Ukraine, from which Ukraine earns um, some pretty lucrative transit fees, would no longer be necessary. And that could cause a um, big problem for the Ukrainians, increased Russian leverage over them. There are no fans of this thing in Eastern Europe at all. There are plenty of opponents of it in Western Europe. America is extremely strongly imposed and has passed uh, opposed and has passed several sets of sanctions against the project, um, some of which have proved very effective. And yet it, uh, the German government can, can continues, most parts of it anyway, continue to stand by it. It's about 95% complete. There's about 150 kilometers that remain to be laid of the thing, mainly in Danish waters. But the sanctions that the Americans have um, have passed, which are basically sort of secondary sanctions that have scared off any international firm from working with the Russians on finishing this thing, you know, from pipeline ships to certification services to reinsurers, you know, you name it. They've all gone away now, so it's down to the Russians themselves to finish this. That's very, very difficult. So the pipeline now, although the, the, the pipe is so close to completion, it's still, with, you know, even with the fairest wind in the world, it's going to take them, you know, probably the best part of six months to complete the thing. They then have major problems in certifying it as you know, meeting international standards. It's not at all clear how they would be able to do that without resorting to companies that have been scared away by American sanctions. And in the meantime, Joe Biden's administration needs to figure out exactly what approach they're going to take to this. You know, they've got a tricky thing. You know, Biden came into office 
wanting to restore all of the alliances with friends that have been totally shredded by Donald Trump. And yet he you know, is on record even when he was vice president as opposing this project. He says today that it's a bad deal for Europe. There are pre-existing sanctions that Congress has mandated the administration to follow. So he's going to have to figure out if there's a way of sort of navigating this tricky situation of walking the tightrope between the need to sort of try to stop uh, Europe uh, from increasing its dependence on Russian gas on the one hand, while at the same time restoring alliances with countries like Germany. So that's one to watch in the next few weeks. I think, you know, the chances are the Russians will probably find a way to complete it. Whether any gas actually ever flows through it is another question. It's like the uh, the undersea version of the uh, the Mexican border wall. It'll just become this sort of white elephant that's uh, yes. never used. Um, and finally, and more generally, um, over the last 20 years, Berlin has really become one of, if not the great sort of cultural hub, not just of Europe, but of the world in everything from contemporary art to nightlife. Presumably, most of that is on hold in the current situation. Has Berlin's cultural community found a way of keeping that spirit alive? And is there a feeling that it will bounce back pretty quickly? Huh. Yeah, um, I mean, you're absolutely right in, in, in both senses. It's all come you know, grinding to a halt here. And even, you know, in, in, the, in the summer, when um, sort of, you know, concert halls and clubs were still closed, but museums and art galleries could open. And some of those venues that had to, that weren't allowed to do what they normally did, sort of reinvented themselves. Beer gardens or Berghain, the legendary techno club, turned itself into an art gallery. But since November, that stuff has been shut as well. So, you know, I mean, they do what they can in the sense of, um, you know, putting sort of online club nights on or uh, there's one fetish club here that's even turned itself into a COVID-19 testing center. So um, they're, they're doing what they can to, to try and make a bit of money and to, and to remind people that they still exist. But basically it's impossible. You do obviously have lots of kind of illegal raves and parties that the police have broken up. And over the summer, there was a Hassenheide, a, a, a park in East Berlin became this sort of informal raving centre. Police had to go there in the middle of the night to, to shut, shut it all down. I even saw this last weekend. I saw a DJ playing on um, a frozen lake when people would flock there. So, you know, they're doing what they can, but um, it's basically nothing to be done at the moment. When it opens up, will it all come rushing back? My, I mean, who knows? My hunch is yes, because I think there's going to be such a clamour for it. And it's not only going to be from Berliners themselves, but it's going to when, you know, when tourism reopens again, there's going to be a lot of people who are desperate to get out and spend some money and have some fun and take in some culture. And one of the first places that springs to mind for them is going to be Berlin. So for those venues and those artists that have managed to survive um, the last year, and of course, lots of them have been able to rely on support from the state, then um, I would hope that they can look forward to a relatively rosy future once we get back to normal. But, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Tom Nottle, thank you for joining us in the bunker, and we fully expect to see you down the front in the queue at Burghain the first weekend it reopens. <laughs> it's a pleasure, yeah, if they let me in. Listeners, thank you for listening. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily on Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays and Friday with a full panel show on Tuesdays. If you want to support the podcast, why not give it a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts or perhaps support The Bunker for as little as £2 a month on Patreon. You'll get the podcast early without ads and access to Smart Bunker merchandise too. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Bunker. 
The Bunker Daily was presented by Justin Quirk. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. The audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>